Welcome to the My College Corner Podcast, sponsored by Invite Education. Today we interview Scott Maciak, Director of Guidance at a leading high school in New Jersey. Scott provides great insight on how the role of guidance has changed and how students and parents are preparing for higher education. He has extensive experience as counselor and also as a former classroom teacher and shares his insight with our host, John Hupala. Welcome to My College Corner, sponsored by Invite Education. I'm John Hupalo, your host. We're so fortunate in 2017 to have had some really great conversations with unbelievably dedicated people who have passionately dedicated their careers to helping families achieve their dreams of college. And I'm really excited about 2018 and bringing some of those great voices to you again. And I have to tell you today, we have one of the great voices and this time in the area of guidance. Uh, this is a gentleman who has a BA in elementary education and teaching, a master's in counseling and school administration. So he's all credentialed up, but he also has the chops in the classroom. He was a classroom teacher. Scott, welcome to My College Corner. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. Pretty clear from your education and from your professional background that you were born uh, to be a counselor. But we all know that when babies are born, your forehead didn't have a label on it that said great guidance counselor. Um, how was it that you, you first came to get into counseling and, and what drew you into the profession? What was interesting was that as a classroom teacher, I was that teacher that the students came to after school and they wanted to sit and talk. So I'd have a line out my door of kids who just wanted to sit and talk and you know work through either some challenges that they've had or something that was on their mind. And I said, hey, you know, obviously, I, if the kids are coming to see me, I have this knack, and I wanted to be able to give them a little more of the individualized attention than what I could in the classroom. And one thing led to another, and I began to have that passion uh, for seeing how I could help students individually, as well as in groups. Uh, and then one thing led to another, and as I was going back for my master's, uh, you know, people all said, you know, you'd be a really good counselor, and that's sort of where I followed, and, you know, I've absolutely loved it ever since. Well, that's a great piece of career advice for anyone who's listening. Uh, follow your passion and, and take uh, advantage of opportunities that come your way. But I have to tell you, Scott, one thing that you just said that really struck me um, is that we're, we're in the education business in some ways. And a lot of times we get stuck on the statistics and numbers and all the rest. But your passion and mission was really about helping individual students and families. And, and that's really tremendous. And I'm sure a bedrock of your practice today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as much as we try to do some group counseling uh, in the school system, it's very hard and everything's very individualized. So I've always had a strong focus on helping the individual, helping the family uh, and truly helping students really become the best that they can be in whatever they want to do. Scott, it's really interesting to me. Um, and I think for parents who are listening, they have uh, two areas that they need some help with. And one of those is to understand a little bit how guidance has changed since we went through the process as high schoolers, because this is a very personal uh, experience for folks. And, and every time I talk to someone, it immediately goes back to what their experience was. So one thing I'd like to talk to you about today is, is just how guidance has changed, but also um, then very specifically about how it applies to an individual family. And, and importantly, the, the parents that I talk to, and I'd love to see if this is your experience as well, now, they always want to know how can they productively work with counselors because there's frankly 
I'm sometimes a little apprehension about what's happening in the school and we're at that time when the student's kind of breaking away from the family and sometimes it's a little there's a little mystery in, in the process. So I just really love to know uh, right, right from the top, you know, what what do you think is a great way for parents to approach guidance counselors in the in the high school? I think one of the things that certainly have changed over the last 20 years is the role of the counselor. You know, and a lot of districts have done away with the title guidance um, because we've become so much more. You know, 20 years ago, you would see your counselor once, you know, they hand in some college applications and maybe they'll attach some letters and send it out for you. Um, but now with so much going on in the world, we see so much increased anxiety and stress uh, that really building that relationship becomes crucial. And I know on a personal level, as well as my department and many counselors, our goal is to develop that relationship so students and families and parents feel comfortable about coming to us if they have a question or if they have a concern. It's just so much more than just the guidance in the academic right now. Um, there is so many different aspects of how do you quote unquote position yourself as you go through the high school process? Um, colleges themselves have become so much more competitive. And I think part of that gets built up, not only in the media, but also as you look at statistics because students are applying to more colleges. So I think everything's just ramped up a lot more than what it was. And you see the invention of things such as the Common App and technology where it becomes so easy for students to apply to multiple institutions and we're so mobile that they can expand their horizons that it just has incorporated so much more. You know, Scott, I'm glad you brought up the, the question about the Common App and what I wanted to ask you about that, do you think that is actually helping students make better choices or is it like going to Baskin Robbins when I can just take any flavor I want I can possibly think of and I and maybe I'm not really maximizing that opportunity, but but the technology, do you, do you think it generally is helpful or does it create other issues for families? I, I sort of see the technology as a double-edged sword at the moment. Yes, it allows them to expand horizons, you know, because normally you stay within this little couple mile radius or thereabouts. And now with the Common App and not having to do that additional application or applications, you can look beyond what you would normally would. The challenge then is the same, that students begin to look at these big horizons and they may not be ready to apply to that school that's 2,000 miles away. They may not be ready to be able to live on their own and handle all those challenges that may come up uh, where they could potentially you know, reach out to a parent or somebody relative nearby who can help them out. So I really see the technology and the Common App as being a double-edged sword in some regards. The technology certainly allows the students to be make more informed decisions, but then I also think sometimes due to this increased availability of knowledge, it becomes even harder for them to make that decision. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and you know the you know the statistics, and I will talk about statistics for a moment here. But the national average um, for guidance counselors to students across the country is something on the order of four hundred and ninety to one, and the American School Counselor Association recommends no greater than two fifty to one, which is still a huge number. And what I was interested in knowing from you is that increase uh, because technology makes it a little bit easier uh, for families or uh, are, are counselors really just that much more stressed? 
Well, I think with the technology, you know, parents can certainly do more on their own. And I think sometimes that does sort of drop the counselor out of the loop a little bit. Uh, or because it's all right at their fingertips, they think that's everything right there. And we may lose a little bit of that face-to-face -face, uh, conversation about something. Uh, you know, at one point, information was not at everybody's fingertips. And you had specialized information based on your field. And now when you have things such as Google and other search engines, you can look up whatever you want, whatever you need at any time. So I think that sometimes we lose a little bit in that. Um, but then sometimes parents will come back to us because then they're in information overload. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and frankly, you know, invite education, one of the things that we're trying to do is demystify the process. And I have uh, two daughters, as you know, who've been through the process. And um, I thought one of the interesting things, despite my professional background and, and some knowledge of the process, I felt like the deer in the headlights when my um, older daughter was there for the first time. And the soccer field chatter and the cocktail party chatter um, only increased the anxiety and made us feel like we were more and more behind the eight ball. Uh, so the technology, as you're saying, particularly searching on Google, you know, you can Google any term you want, but you don't really know if that information is current or not. Many times I'm reading and then I'll look at the, the tagline and see, oh, this was an article from 2012 or whenever it might be. So um, I can understand that point about uh, trying to help parents through the process. But the question I wanted to ask you actually is that you keep talking about parents. And one of the issues that, that we see, or at least I do when I talk to families, is that it seems like uh, from my perspective, the, the students kind of have the guidance counselor and then the parents, at least my perception, is they're kind of on their own trying to figure out and fill and, and get into the process when they think it's appropriate. But from what you're saying, do, do you work more, as much with parents as you do with students or do you feel like you're a student resource first? I believe I work with students and parents. I think one of the challenges that we see is that, and we're all guilty of this, we try to do something through our perspective of our own experience. And if you haven't, and my daughter is a freshman in college, so I've done been through the same process as a parent. And when you look at it from a perspective of what it was 15 years ago, sometimes you may have some additional misconceptions based on your own experience. I try to work with both students and parents. I always like to say that the student's really driving the bus and that both myself and parents, we're here to help them and make sure they're making informed decisions. So I consider myself a student advocate first, but then also I am absolutely here to help the parents because I receive many questions about the process and about the whole college list and how you develop that, which is very different from what it was 15, 20 years ago uh, in trying to make sure that you have the right fit for the student. And you've uh, drawn that line a couple times now about differences. What What is one of the, the most common, um, perhaps, um, misinterpretations or that I might have as a parent where I, I remember when I went through the process now 30 plus years ago, but I remember when I went through the process or uh, that, that's just so much different uh, in the last 15 years that might actually throw a parent off and Put us in a position when we're not actually providing the best advice or guidance to our students but a place where a guidance counselor could could help put us on a better course sometimes i see the whole competition and you talk about the soccer field chatter and things like that and then people begin to ramp up and sort of compare themselves 
about where they are to where another family is, where the college process is really individualized. And yes, one family may start a little earlier than another family, but it's an individual process. Family A does not have to do what family B is doing. There are multiple paths to the same goal. And we have this image in society where almost everybody feels like they have to go to college. You certainly can go to college and there's a college for everyone if they want to go. But there are so many other options out there as you talk about different things in terms of the trades in the fields. Those are perfectly viable options for the right student. Yeah, this thing about keeping up with the Joneses is is really problematic, I think. And um, it's not just going to college in, in many schools now. And I know the early decisions are just now coming in and the, the, the sort of haves and the have-nots about who got into their ED school and who didn't is now starting to become apparent. Uh, but there's this idea that not only, you know, a, a, the challenge and pressure and anxiety and being overwhelmed about going to a college, uh, there's this question about going to the right college or one that seems to be in a peer group that's right for your social status rather than maybe what you want to do with your life. Do you find that that's an issue as well? Uh, I, I know it's an issue out there. I, I personally don't see that as much. Um, but yes, it's all about the right fit. And what students and parents have to keep in mind is that it's not just about getting in and being accepted. It's also about being able to maintain that level of performance to the school that you've gotten into or that you're attending. So it's more than just getting in. And we talk about the social and the emotional well-being of a student beyond the academic as well. So what you're defining, Scott, is, is what we, you and I have talked about it, and we, we talk about it a lot uh, with, with families, and I know you do, and that is what's the right fit uh, for, for a, a student at a particular college. And could you just draw that a little bit sharper for us? When you're talking to parents and students, even as early as the ninth grade, I would hope, how do you talk to them about finding the right fit? What are the components of that? I talk about that in a, in a couple of different components, not only the academics, you want the student to be challenged, but we talk about the social and the emotional piece. And by that, I mean that we need to look at the entire student. You're not just looking about the curriculum or the major within that with, at that school, you want to talk about the activities and what does the student want to get involved in on campus and what are they bringing to the campus. If a student has to sit in their dorm room 24-7 to maintain the academic performance of that institution, how well are we meeting the social and the emotional piece of that student? And we all know, I know as a parent myself, you know, the last thing we want is the phone call from our child that first week at college saying, you know, I'm in over my head, I have no friends, I'm not being, I'm not, I can't participate because I'm always studying. So when we talk about the fit, we talk about the academic piece, we talk about the social, and then we also talk about the emotional and what, what are the capabilities of that student and how well is that student ready to meet whatever needs may be on that campus. That's, that's a great paradigm, and, and I know you and I have talked about the third component of the fit, and that's the affordability or the financial component uh, for the same reason that, you know, you, you want to be challenged academically, but you don't want to be in over your head. You want to be in a social, um, emotional environment that feels right for that particular student, and every student is different. And then you also want to be in a situation where the financial component um, also doesn't put increased stress on the family or on the student while they're in college. Um, so I think those three uh, pieces of the puzzle, it, it's, a, it's a real art uh, for folks like you to help guide families to a, a solution 
and a fit in a college that makes sense for that family based on all those criteria. Yeah, and one of the things I always I always advise a family, and I, I've had that experience, you know, a family does not want to knock a college off the list just because of the sticker price. We talk about financial aid, we talk about private schools generally having larger endowments than public schools. So when you compare financial aid packages, you know that ultimately that private school could indeed be cheaper than the public institution. And if you're not necessarily in the field or you're not thinking along those lines, you may by accident pull a college off the list where that actually may be the best financial fit for the family. So I always advise them, keep all the options open until you actually get a financial aid package. Yeah, and that is um, a home run piece of advice. Uh, I, I say the same thing. You, you, I, I make it, uh, it reminds me of the New York State Lottery. You can't win if you don't play. Um, I'm not saying that people should go play the lottery, but I think the financial aid uh, game is is in part a game. It's Of course, there's you and I know there are two kinds of aid, need-based aid, but also merit aid. So a family, even a high-earning family with a lot of assets could actually uh, find uh, their student a position where they're getting merit aid for one reason or another. Um, so you're, I agree. Don't, don't, don't strike anybody off the list. But on the other side of that coin, um, you do need to be realistic once the financial aid award letters are in and the family sits down and say, okay, where is, where is this going to shake out for us uh, to try to put themselves in a position where they're not taking on an excessive amount of debt based on what they think the outcome uh, of that college experience would be, which for most students means getting a job and, and being able to pay back whatever loans they have to take. Yeah, and that becomes a, a very a very long conversation. And it also can be a very private conversation as you talk about what debt do you think the student could rightfully endure and the family take on and, and the family relations within that in terms of who's taking the debt out and who's going to be working to pay that back. And what happens if you don't find that job right out of college? Um, but that's not to say that you shouldn't be looking at what a college has to offer you and what is the, as I like to call the ROI or return on investment for what you're paying for that institution. Yeah, and I'd love to talk to you about ROI and that's probably a conversation for, for another day because uh, I have some thoughts about that as well. But I think it's great to know uh, that a guidance counselor or a school counselor, now that we've broadened the term, is really helping families understand that it's not just getting in it's about being stable and feeling good about the college that you're attending. And then once you're out, also feeling good that you have an outcome that's going to produce enough income or at least have a path uh, so that you're not uh, overburdened by all those loans. And that, that's an awful lot for an 18 or 19 year old to think about without the proper assistance at the front end. And I'm glad to know you're, you're, you and your colleagues think it's important to at least bring this topic up for families as you're talking to them. And absolutely. And, you know, as we talk about this financial piece as well as the other components here, you know, we talk about preparing students for jobs that don't exist yet. Uh, I think part of that becomes a much broader conversation in terms of what direction do you want to go in and where anything might lead you. And, and I see the financial piece plays into this as well. Uh, even though we're creating students for jobs that don't exist yet, you know, you look at starting salaries and you look at starting debt and you really have to look at them together and balance one against the other. You know, Scott, you made the point that the student drives the bus in the process itself and you help uh, provide advice and guidance to the, to the students. 
who do you, in your experience, who is the, the decision maker? So the, all of the information is in, it's about time to write that first uh, check to, to reserve your place in the class. Is it the student who makes that decision? Is the parent makes that decision? How does that generally play out? General, at least from my perspective, generally it's the conversation with the student. Now, I certainly, as well as all of my colleagues, you know, we certainly tell the students you've got to have those open and honest conversations with your parents about your hopes, dreams, and desires. And I, I certainly hope that the student is taking the lead in that conversation, but the parents absolutely have to be a part of that. Uh, and that's really a family dialogue of understanding why do we think that this school is a good fit for this student, or in some conversations, why we think the school may not be the best fit. Um, but I'd like to think that the students are taking the lead, but they have to be including parents as part of that conversation. So I have to ask you, Scott, um, so do, do you get the, the phone call in the middle of April from the parent who just knows that their student is hell-bent on going to a school that the parent believes is not right, so they call you up and they say, Scott, you've got to help me here. I think this is the wrong fit for little Johnny. Um, you know, what do you think? Does that happen? Usually that conversation, if it's going to happen, will happen much earlier in the process. Uh, everybody, you know, and even some of my colleagues uh, in neighboring districts and things are, those conversations happen very early because we engage both parents and students very early in this process. If there is some conversation that needs to happen about the list, it happens well before that. Um, and it's a perfectly legitimate conversation to have, but it's really a conversation that everybody has to have a stake in for whatever reason. Uh, and whether it's helping the student understand why we may feel one way or another, but it's also understanding why the student feels their way as in addition to that. So it really becomes an open and honest dialogue. Well, and I, I think your point is, is absolutely critical, and that is starting that um, whole conversation earlier. It's way too late when the acceptance letters show up to start having that conversation with a student because there's all kinds of emotional stuff going on. I always, I tell parents all the time, you know, this is the, the time in the student's life when they're sort of flapping their wings for the first time. They've been driving for a little while, but now they're going to go up, they're going to leave the nest. And there's just natural anxiety. Some of them want to leave. Some of them think they want to leave until they realize what that actually means. And there's like all this stuff going on. So um, to start that conversation sooner rather than later is really critical. And when, when you talk to students, when do you actually start talking about the college process to your high school students? Well, it's very interesting. In very simplified terms, we started very basically in grade nine, but we really don't get into the hardcore stuff until maybe the end of 10, and then certainly by 11. Because uh, in grade 10, we start talking about them planning and preparing, looking at their testing in terms of ACTs, SATs, what they're doing. So, you know, sometimes students come in to me ready to start that conversation, and other times I, I'm the first one out leading that conversation. Um, but, you know, you don't want to overwhelm a student if they're not ready to start that conversation, but you can get a very good sense based on the other dialogues that you're having about whether that student is ready to begin that conversation. You know, I've, uh, I've told people, and you might disagree, but uh, I tell them that the college game really starts uh, when the homeroom bell freshman year rings for the first time. Um, and I, I say that because the choices um, that, that that student is making almost at the 
very beginning of, of their high school career about what courses they're going to take, about what level of rigor are they going to be honor students or you know what, how all that's going to shake out. And then as important as you mentioned, what extracurricular activities, other activities they may be involved with, uh, that you can't start that um, in junior year. Uh, that now you're you're right on top of it. So starting a little earlier and, and just again not spending you know I, I I sort of joke and say you don't need to have the five page strategic plan to get into college X or Y. You just need to understand that you need a plan and sort of loosely get your interests lined up so that when you're when it comes time to file that application, you have a great story to package and tell to the college. Absolutely. And even, you know, even when we talk about starting in grade nine, we talk about that GPA and what that means and what the overall course progression means uh, so that they have a sense that freshman year does matter. Uh, I always like to make the relationship between a batting average in baseball and GPA. You get the hit earlier in the season, you're going to have a bigger impact on the average than at the end of the season. Right. You know, and I try to have that conversation to begin that thought process that what you do now does indeed matter. I, I agree. And one, one of the, um, I think, interesting areas when it all comes up is that um, if we as I'm going to put I'm gonna ungraciously put myself in, in some of your shoes and say we as professionals trying to help uh, families, uh, I, I, I say that from the perspective that if we're able to just signal to them what's important early on, grade by grade, when you really need to start getting your game together in which area, uh, that becomes a very useful service. So why don't we do this and um, just sort of in a rapid fire way, maybe go through some of the college related specifics that become really important to students. And you mentioned one earlier, which is testing. Um, and I remember uh, when, when I was uh, in high school and the dinosaurs were roaming the earth, um, basically, you took the SAT and that was kind of it. Um, the ACT has actually um, now overtaken the SAT in number of test takers. And so I'm just wondering, that's probably a new dynamic for guidance counselors. How do you um, help students evaluate which test is best for them? Do you, do you counsel them to take both? Or what, what, what's the good thinking these days, best practices on test taking? Generally, as a safety measure of being proactive, you know, especially if they don't have uh, a background to make a determination, I, I've personally encouraged them to take it, take each of them once and see which one they do better on. And then depending on what test prep you want to go through and how you want to go about that preparation, then determine which one do you feel you're more qualified for. Uh, you know, and we talk about the pros and cons of each. And now you also throw in the topic of test optional which is a whole nother conversation as you talk about evaluating students. But I've always encouraged them to go with what they feel their strength is. You know, if you do sample tests and practice tests and you feel so much more confident about one, go in one direction more than the other. But if you're not really sure, look at both of them and then make your decision off of that. So what I'm hearing you say is that the schools now, I'm, I'm going to use the word ambivalent, maybe incorrectly, but they'll take a, either one of the tests. There's really no sort of predominant uh, test to say, well, if you don't take this one or the other, we're, we're not going to consider you. Yeah, that, that that's correct. And I think what colleges are learning or have learned is something that a lot of us have already experienced, that it's very hard to justify or qualify a student on one test day. You know, we all know that we some students are not good test takers. You know, you have that one day that you're not feeling well, and that happens to be the day you're taking the SAT or the ACT. There's so much more to a student 
than just a simple test score. Uh, so I have been a firm believer in putting together the best package. And you know, your test score is your test score. You know, you take it two, three times. If they're all about the same, that's where you're going to score. But you have so much more that you can share with a college beyond a test score. You're, you're getting at that concept I, I brought up before when we talked about just the idea of packaging. Um, an, another um, question around this packaging and getting the best application together possible uh, is around uh, recommendations uh, from teachers and the essay. Um, what, what advice do you have for um, students and parents around how to, how to pick the right recommender and also um, how to choose an essay uh, topic? All right, for the recommendation, at least for the teacher recommendation, I've always encouraged the student to pick the teacher that they feel the most comfortable with. Who do you have the best relationship with? Because those teacher letters really should be specific to how the teacher knows that student within that setting, you know, within the classroom setting. Is there something that they've done in that class that really makes them stand out or that the teacher can share as being memorable? So I always encourage the students to make sure they get those recommendations from people that that they're very comfortable with and they can have that dialogue and conversation with. Uh, in terms of the essays, I always encourage them to pick something that they're passionate about and make sure it's helping to explain something that may not necessarily be visible on the application. You want to use that essay to enhance, either to expand upon your interest that's on there or to truly demonstrate that you have a passion for something and that that's going to carry over into your college years. There's a, a little bit of a cottage industry, Scott, that's developed um, over the, I don't know what the time frame is, but certainly over the last five or 10 years, which is around a group that I call the college coaches, uh, for lack of a better term. And these are folks who, I uh, say, supplement or complement the guidance office, third party paid services um, who might help with the creation of a college list, or they may help with an essay or test prep or the like. Um, how do professional guidance counselors like yourself, um, how do you feel about that, that development? Is that helpful to you? Is, is it, what's your reaction to, to that, that new, I'm going to say newer industry that's sprung up? I, I've, had, I've had mixed uh, interactions with, with the private college counselors, you know, because in some cases we don't necessarily know what their training or their background is. Uh, you know, for all of us who are sitting in a guidance office, you know, we've gone through counseling programs uh, that have courses on, on some sort of the college planning piece along the way. Uh, so depending on what their training and their background is, sometimes it can be helpful. Sometimes there are very big differences in opinion between what a school counselor may think and what the private counselor is encouraging. Um, so it becomes a dialogue. And I've always encouraged students, you know, you have to be careful in terms of looking at multiple resources. There's really not a lot that, there's not anything that your high school counselor can't do for you that a private counselor can do for you. You just need to ask. You know, we have caseloads that are in the 200 range uh, and we do our very best to make sure everybody gets the personalized interest. Uh, but we'll gladly read an essay, we'll gladly sit with you and talk with you. You just need to ask, it may not be as automatic. Um, and, you know, I just, I get concerned when parents are paying large amounts of money to a, a college counselor who either is trying to say that they can guarantee an acceptance or they have this lofty goal that may not be the most appropriate, you know, looking at those other pieces of the emotional and the social piece. So it's really been a mixed bag. 
Um, and I just encourage people, if you're going to do that, just be careful. Make sure you're doing the background check and understanding what their training is that gives them this qualification. Uh, well, my, my confession to you is that we got caught up in that whole uh, keeping up with the Joneses thing after the soccer field and, and, uh, and cocktail party chatter with my older daughter. And uh, our experience is exactly what you said. We, we went to a, a counselor outside of the high school office. Uh, she took some information, came back with a school list that was wholly inappropriate for what my daughter's background and, and grades were, but it, it seemed like it was just like this canned thing. And, uh, you know, I do have other friends who said, you know, this was the best investment they made. So I think your caution is uh, lines up really nicely with my experience, which is if you feel like that's necessary for whatever reason, um, just make sure that uh, that you're finding someone who's well trained and has a background. And I'll add one one piece of uh, that you uh, to what you recommended. And it's really helpful if if that particular counselor knows the school, the school district, some attributes of the school, uh, because the 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 colleges understand uh, very well. Uh, the benefits and and some of the strengths and weaknesses of particular high schools. Um, so if that counselor is is taking that into account, uh, you know, perhaps working together with the family and the high school counselor, um, you can get a much better result than than unfortunately we had. Uh, yeah. but I was going to say, and that becomes a very interesting perspective in terms of, you know, we're here because that's our job. We're here for the day. Uh, when you look at some of the college counselors, they may have a little different approach and they see it more of a business end as a and a client end as opposed to, you know, this is what we do all day. Well, and your comment about why you're in it and, and every single guidance counselor I've ever met. And by the way, they, they, you and your colleagues come to forums on Saturday mornings and snowstorms in places like Providence, Rhode Island to get some extra um, discussion on this and just a just hugely dedicated group who have those students' best interests as hard. And, and when you said you got into it for the personal reasons, uh, that, that really struck a chord with me because the, the students understand that, the parents will appreciate it. And I guess my, my comment to parents is, um, and I felt that sometimes we were imposing on the school, knowing that the ratios were so terrible. But um, you all, that's what you do. That's what your passion is. And I, I would also recommend to parents that they take advantage of the school-based resources as the first stop. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. We're, you know, we're employed by the district, districts to absolutely help. And, you know, there's not a counselor out there that doesn't want to help. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we may not be able to to be out there, you may need to ask, but we're certainly willing to do it. That's never never a question. Let's just uh, turn uh, toward uh, the money angle here one last time, and that is with regard to financial aid and scholarships, Scott. Uh, I'm sure you know the best advice is try to find some scholarships to apply for financial aid. Um, is there anything more than just those generalities, uh, particularly for high earning families where they believe that maybe it's just a waste of their time to apply for financial aid? What's your view? I always encouraged families that they should be applying at least for the first couple of years because you never know what's going to happen. And I don't want to be in a situation where, you know, maybe there was something that you were eligible for, but you just didn't bother applying. You know, after the first two years or so and you haven't received anything, then, then that's another conversation. But I've always encouraged everybody to please, at least those first couple of years, because a lot of institutions will use some of that for institutional aid as well, whether it be merit, need, or anything else. 
uh, you know, as you mentioned, you do have to be in it to win it. So for the time that it takes to fill out the FAFSA, especially now that they have the IRS retrieval tool and all those other resources, uh, to me, it's a wise investment of time, at least for those first couple of years, even if you don't receive anything. And with regard to scholarships, I, I tell families all the time that, you know, you can do the online searching and, and buy the books and all that. But oftentimes, guidance counselors know of local scholarships or other opportunities for money. Um, is, the, is my thinking on that correct? Do you have some inside baseball on, on some local or state scholarships that, that families uh, would, would find the information coming from you a lot easier than if they tried to research it themselves? Yeah, we do have a resource library, and I know a lot of the other districts do, too. We put all the scholarships that we receive in one place, so someone can just go on and click. We try to put links in there. You know, and as I say, we're never going to know about every single scholarship that's out there. But if you have a resource that you can use, to at least to begin looking at something, it gives you an idea of what you may be eligible for. But yes, there are resources out there uh, that gives you a whole list that you can begin to look at and begin to formulate a game plan of what you want to do. Um, so it's certainly something that you absolutely have to continue to look at. The money's out there. It just doesn't necessarily fall in your lap. You know, you have to work uh, at this process in all regards and finding some of that scholarship money can really be helpful um, for families. Scott, just the last uh, piece on, on the application process itself, and I think this is a big decision for a lot of families, and that is um, what's What's the right way for students and parents uh, to consider the idea of early action, early decision? Uh, can you tell us what those mean and what your advice is for parents? Sure, absolutely. Early decision is a binding agreement where a student makes an application, an early whatever deadline the college sets. Uh, but there's also a little early decision contract that goes along with that, that a student, a parent, the counselor has to sign, that if the student gets in, they will go there. Um, and, and that can be a little bit, little bit risky. Early action is similar, except there's no binding contract. So you make your application, but you don't really have to give them that final answer until whatever deadline that college sets. Uh, early action is by far, in my recommendation, the best way to go because it gets you that first acceptance, which immediately eliminates a lot of the pressure off of students. They know they have a place to go. Uh, but then you have that opportunity to compare and contrast colleges throughout that senior year, whereby early decision, you, if, you should only really apply early decision if it's truly the place that you have your heart set on going for whatever reason, but that you've also done your financial homework. So that way you know that no matter what happens at that institution, you can afford to go there. So I sort of encourage the early action unless you truly have your heart set on a specific place. And do the colleges um, have pools where they'll say, you know, X percent of the ED students will get in, X percent of the early, am I, do I have a, if I'm trying to game it, and we know that maybe that's not a great way to think about how to apply to college, but I think some parents do think about it that way. You're trying to, in the game theory of it, do you have a better chance of getting in or ED or EA as opposed to the regular application cycle? Uh, absolutely. That's one of those topics that really ends up being an institution by institution uh, scenario. A lot of colleges will say they'll pull X percentage from their early decision, early action pool. Uh, on the flip side of that, there's also a higher, you know, there's more competition for that. So the best recommendation in that case is to make sure that a student's doing their homework and you should ask about those ED and EA percentages so that you understand 
what it is that you're going to be up against. Um, there's no real magic answer for that particular question, but it's certainly something that you do want to consider depending on where those percentages come out. If you see that a school is taking over 50% of its class from an EDEA pool, and that's really high on your list, depending on where you are academically, it might be worth your, your chance to try that. I think this is now going to be the third time I said, I only have one more question for you. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I have one more question, and you, you, you pro just prompted me, and that is uh, sort of best practices around the wait list. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've gone through the process, and, and I, I've been waitlisted at the school that I really want to go to. Um, what, what's your professional experience around the probability of a student coming off a wait list? I have found that the wait list, you know, colleges going to the wait list, and I have not found to be very high. So, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily put all my eggs in that basket uh, if I were waitlisted. But that's a question that you can ask. Uh, if you are in that situation where you're put on the wait list, give that admissions office a call. And if you know the admissions counselor that you've worked with, ask them, what have you pulled from your wait list over the years past? And see where you fall on that list if they'll tell you and get a better sense. So, you know, it's something that, you know, you can hold on to, but I certainly wouldn't uh, put all my eggs on that waiting to come off of a wait list. And, and I, uh, other than just pleading, um, I'd imagine the, the best thing that a student can do, and I say student, not parent, I say student specifically, the best thing a student can do um, when they contact that, that admissions rep um, is to try to provide some, or maybe find out what it was about their application that may, may have prohibited them from getting the big fat envelope instead of getting the, the smaller one. But, um, you know, what can they do to, to increase their chance of coming off the wait list or retake a test? Or is, is that good advice as well? Yes, you can certainly follow up with the institution to see, you know, what's going on with the wait list and see how you ended up there. You know, a lot of cases it's going to end up being that there were just more qualified students. Um, but it is, once again, a question worth asking. The more you know, the better off you can strategize. Um, you know, and if the admissions rep knows that you're truly serious about coming there, and whatever flexibility they may have, they may be able to help you with that waitlist situation. So I'm going to end, Scott, with um, I guess some parental advice slash wisdom that you can uh, either agree or disagree with, and that is uh, that in my experience, um, it works out for the best in almost all cases. Um, sometimes you may get that denial and be heartbroken or a waitlist and not get in, uh, but that school might actually see that you know the fit really is not good uh, for that student um, for whatever reason it might be um, so that uh, going with the, the the decision sometimes and going to the next option uh, might work out perfectly for that student so um, being dismayed and upset's not not you know it's a natural reaction but it doesn't have to be the the last word uh, that you can have a really successful college career at a school that might not have been your first choice I absolutely concur. It's not, you know, it's not, there's multiple paths to the same goal. And it's not always necessarily about where you go. It's about what you do with where you go. So we certainly encourage everybody to keep an open mind. And even with an early decision uh, situation, you know, you may have your heart set on a place, but you have to understand that ultimately the institution has the final answer. So I certainly encourage students to keep an open mind about the entire process 
and truly making the best of whatever situation they're in and just continue to move forward from there. You know, I always view the glass as half full. So I always encourage them to stay positive and think about what, what they can do with where they're going. Well, that's a great way um, to end our first um, interview with a great voice in the college process, uh, Scott Masiak. And Scott, thank you again for your time. We are both half full people. In fact, I think we're both three quarters full people. And uh, thank you for your time today. And also, uh, on behalf of all those students, thanks for all the great work that you and your colleagues as guidance counselors do to help all of us. I thank you very much. It was my pleasure.